three generations of us lived together. Our kids were in high school, and Grandma and Ann and me and our kids, we had five cars for a period of time. And so whichever car was the furthest out in the driveway was usually the one that we drove, right? It's no fun to jockey cars around. So we got to find out what radio stations or what CDs everybody was listening to. And I will tell you this, that Bonnie and our son Jordan listened to different kinds of music. Can you imagine that? Hey, let's listen to see what's on uh, radio station E107 this morning. That's Bonnie. I think that's Brian Beals, I think. I just, I think. Ron, was that you? Uh. Oh, that's Saturday night. That's that sad one. Just a poor boy. Y'all don't want to hear me, you just want to dance. You have to go. There we go. Okay. Well, I don't know what's on your, uh, what's on your radio station, but it's uh, varied, isn't it? And you know that probably nothing of that is uh, what our Brazil team is experiencing today in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, Lori in Uganda. And by the way, the team comes home on Friday. We're going to get to hear from them. And uh, Lori Dickerson is going to be back in a few days. We'll get to see her again from Uganda. And guess what? Their worship today is a little bit different than that as well. Anne and I uh, have had, uh, in the first half of our life, just a remarkable opportunity. Uh, You've probably noticed that we don't travel much now. That's absolutely on purpose. But we used to travel for 20 years. We traveled weekly, essentially, and got to have a lot of experiences. In fact, we uh, got to visit and, and in most cases, speak in over 300 four-square churches in the U.S. We've been in 34 countries. Most of that was ministry-related stuff. We've consulted for uh, different denominations from Southern Baptist to Church of God in Christ to Church of God General Conference to Missionary Church to Assembly of God and uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran. We've had a variety of different kinds of worship experiences in different places. Between the two of us, we've helped about 800 churches start, plant in the U.S. in almost every conceivable cultural setting that you can imagine. Our kids that were born in, uh, in Sweet Home and grew up in Eugene and Bend lived their high school years in Los Angeles, where 163 languages are spoken in the homes of the kids that attend those schools. Ann and I were a part of a church plant for two years where we were the white couple on the first Sunday, and two years later, when we finished our time at that church, we were still the white couple there in South Central L.A. We have had wonderful cultural experiences. And I think one of the things, one of the things that kind of set us up for that was that uh, when we were in our 20s and launched a church, that church very quickly had a daughter church in a town 13 miles away. And after a couple of years, we pastored both of those churches. And it looked really good on paper. You just do one service here, and then you get in the car, and you go 13 miles, and you do another service there, right? 13 miles apart, both young churches. The people in both congregations knew us. They loved us, or at least they regularly acted like that. It just looks so easy on paper. You just do here what you do there, right? 
Not at all. It wasn't that the people were so different, but it was that their friends were different. When their guests came to church, their guests were expecting a cultural context that was quite different. In one church, frankly, it was a bunch of people who had migrated up from San Francisco Bay Area or from L.A., you know, to live in the mountains and grow pot and not work and do that kind of a lifestyle. So when those friends came to church, they were expecting a cultural package that looked and smelled like them. And then we went 13 miles away to another congregation, another young church that loved us, and people didn't care what we looked like. They loved us. There was relationship. But their friends sure did. When he comes, came straight from the Rotary Club, this accountant that owned an accounting firm, he expected a cultural context that didn't look and smell the same way as the pot grower up in Cascadia. It was a cultural difference. And what Ann and I discovered in our mid and late 20s was that we actually, to love people, could keep the same message. Isn't the Bible eternally true? That's the central deal. Same text, same points, but everything else changed. The stories, the illustrations, the examples, the applications. When you talk about don't steal, that looks different for a pot grower than a certified public accountant. They just have a different life context to experience in that. When you talk about modesty, if you're dealing with 70s hippies versus mainstream Main Street, it just has a different kind of application. You understand that. The message didn't change, but the context certainly did. Worship changed. We literally changed our clothes going from one congregation to the next. Later this week, I will be at an event here. I will be wearing a pinstripe Navy custom-made wool suit because that is what is appropriate to do in that cultural context. And some of you will be here for that. And you'll appreciate with me that because of what we're doing together, it makes sense for us to respond culturally in a different way. And when we look at this great church in Acts, uh, the church at Antioch that turned the world upside down, that won the world for Jesus, and we're asking this question, Lord, who are you asking us as Evergreen to be, and what are you calling us to do in this fresh decade? We're going to take a look at the difference today between substance and style. Substance and style. You know, when Jesus... Uh, walked and talked for his three or three and a half years of ministry, he absolutely never compromised the substance, did he? Ever. The message was the same. But where he got into difficulty was where people had taken their tradition, their style, and had merged it with the truth and had sanctified the style along with the substance. And that's why the fights that Jesus had, the irritation that he created was always with the religious community. It wasn't with non-religious people because it was with folks that at some point had confused what was very appropriate culturally, but they had elevated it to the same level as well. We had kind of fun with the radio station this morning. This is a trick question. Don't answer it. It would be unkind of me to do that. But what was Jesus' preferred style of music? And of course, as we look through the Gospels, not only is there no answer to that, we're not sure that Jesus appreciated music at all. If you ask what was his preferred instrument, 
All we know from the Gospels is that as far as we know in that record, Jesus may have never heard an instrument. It just doesn't pop up. But what we can assume is that very likely he engaged in worship that was culturally consistent with whatever was happening in the synagogue. If we ask through the New Testament, what's the preferred instrument in the New Testament? What would we come up with? Well, the church tradition that I grew up in read the New Testament carefully and discovered until you get to the trumpet blast and the second coming in heaven, there's no mention of instruments at all. That's why we worshiped a cappella, just voices, because the New Testament doesn't describe or illustrate the church using instruments in worship. Cultural context, the style and the substance. What helps a church be a living, vibrant, healthy, reproducing church where God has sent them? And so we take a look at this church at Antioch. I want you to notice three things with me today about how they loved others. And the first one is this. We get to love people by meeting them where they are physically. We remember that Paul and the missionary band from Antioch were sent out. Just like Jesus in the Great Commission said, go and make disciples. And as they were sent, one of the places that they arrived was Philippi, this Roman colony city that apparently wasn't a very hospitable place for Jews because there wasn't even a synagogue there. How's Paul ever going to find people that might be God-fearing, though they haven't yet heard about Jesus. We read this in Acts chapter 16, verses 13, 14, and 15. Follow along, if you will, as I read them out loud. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down, and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Tyathira, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord, notice this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. The question that we ask today is, where do you go meet and love people? When Paul and the team showed up in town, they, they went out to nature They expected that probably people were worshiping God out by the river. That was a custom for those who did not have a synagogue. And that's where they found them. And this great church at Philippi was born. And later we read that it's a church that's filled with joy and vibrancy. It's one of the most pleasant, refreshing books of the New Testament to read. This letter that Paul wrote back to the church at Philippi. He went to where the people were physically. Our question is, where has God sent you into his world to meet with people where they are? For some of you, it'll be at school this week, and for some at work, and for some it'll be at the park where you walk the dog, and for some of you, it will be uh, at the store. And where has God sent you? Now, one of the things that we've discovered about knowing Jesus for a period of time is that it can it generally happens that our circle of people, friends, our circle of influence, of those that don't yet know the Lord gets smaller and smaller as our friendships become more and more focused around believers. And that's tough, isn't it? Because we want to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's very important. But at some point, it can be possible that we end up actually knowing very few people. And a church that turns the world upside down for Christ's sake is a church that has gone out there to where they are. This is kind of fun. 
Not all of you live in Washington County, but let's just use that as a geographic frame of reference. There are about 700, excuse me, 537,000 people in Washington County. We grow and have historically grown for the last 40 years about twice the rate of the rest of the state of Oregon. 537,000 people in Washington County. 63% of them claim no affiliation with any form of religious practice or organization. Generously, we would call them unchurched, 63%. So if you take the population in the county and reduce it by those who do claim some kind of religious affiliation and divide that number by the number of us that will worship here at Evergreen this weekend, about 700 or so, that gives you your own group of 437 people that are unchurched that you can go and have relationship with and never bump into anyone that I might have relationship with. Isn't that remarkable? Remarkable. Astounding. 437 people for every adult and student and child and baby that will worship here this weekend. God has chosen for you to live at this season of time, has chosen for you to be a part of this community. And for most of us here today, this community of faith and great opportunity for us to go to where people are and love them. Ann and I, when uh, we finished our uh, six-year stint in Los Angeles and got to move back home to Oregon and were called by the Lord to specifically live in Hillsboro, chose our place very, very purposely. We live in a Renko station. And when I describe it, some of you will say that is exactly where I do not want to live. I understand. A Renko station was designed for people to run into each other. You pretty much want to know your neighbors if you live there. And we specifically chose to live in one of 28 townhomes that make it virtually impossible not to bump into your neighbors. So yesterday when we came home from our 32nd of the 32 adventures, we drove in the back in the garage and bumped into the neighbor that lives two houses down. We have a wonderful relationship with her. Just had a great exchange, walked into the house. I went out the front door, met a neighbor there and walked across the street and got the mail and then into the bank to make a little deposit and then over to the cleaners and then, of course, to Starbucks because it's very important for us to stay in touch with our good young friends at Starbucks. In fact, we have church at Starbucks. Some of the baristas there know Jesus and some don't. And one of those that we're not certain about just uh, last week said to Ann, would you and Jared pray for my mom? And he described her condition and That evening we were having dinner a block down the street and on the border. And as we gave thanks for the meal, we prayed for his mom. The next morning I went into Starbucks and he said, I don't know if Ann told you, but I asked her for you guys to pray for my mom. And I said, we did. We prayed for her together last night. And how is she doing? Church at Starbucks. I know it's just another lame excuse for me to go there. I know that. But the point is this. God has sent you into his world. And in the intentionality of Paul to ask the question, how am I going and loving people where they are physically? The second thing that we get to discover is that we love people by accepting them where they are culturally and philosophically. Just moving over one chapter to Acts chapter 17 and reading verses 17 through 19 and then verse 34 We read about Paul when he comes to this city of Athens, this 
Greek city that earlier was the very center of Western world philosophy. Now the Romans had taken over Greece as a part of their empire, and politically Rome had the power, but Greek was still this place where people who at least thought they were very smart would hang out. And when we see Paul going to them, this is what it says. Let's read it. So he, Paul, reasoned in the marketplace day by day, those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching, notice the substance here, was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Diocenes, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and another, another, a number of others. Now, we won't take the time to read this whole chapter, but if we did, you would notice that the talk that Paul gave there to the Areopagus was a very different conversation than he had when he was in Jewish synagogues or was with Jewish believers. In fact, he spent some time there in Athens, and he was looking around the city, and he noticed that there were a lot of Greek statuary, idols to various deities and gods. And when he had the opportunity to stand before the Areopagus, which was actually the supreme court in the Western world for philosophy, these people whose forebears years before had actually sentenced the philosopher Socrates to death there at that place, no longer had the power to condemn people to death, but they had the power to say whether or not this worldview stood up to muster. And there were two different groups that were there. There were the Epicureans. They were those that believed that God was a personal God and that he had created, but then he was distant and aloof and removed and left people to their own ends. And that the highest pursuit of humankind was the pursuit of pleasure. So eat, drink, and be merry was the Epicurean philosophy. And then there were the Stoics, and their founder had said God also was the creator, but is also remote and distant. But this God has set in motion physical laws. And if you align yourself with natural laws, life will work better for you. And so they were rather rigid in how they lived life and cautious. And so we hear about a person that's stoic. And that's a person who's rather reserved and may not look like they're having a lot of fun. The Epicureans did not have that problem. They did not look reserved, and they had a lot of fun. But they had mutual respect for one another, and they were going to figure out whether or not this Paul was just a babbler. Now, did you kind of pick up that they weren't too impressed with him? Yeah, they weren't. The word babbler is a Greek word that comes from the idea of a pigeon pigeon hopping around, picking up seeds from various places. He's just a babbler. This guy has just gone around different places and he's picked up different threads of thought and he's mishmashed them together in a philosophy and that's all he is, is a babbler. And others said, we should listen to him. And when he came today to stand before them, 
he showed them tremendous respect. He said, I have spent some time here in your city, and I've noticed that you are devout people, God believers, and that you have gone out of your way to assure that all of the deities that you believe in have been recognized. And I discovered, interestingly, that there's one called the unknown God. And I'm here today to tell you all about this God that you've already demonstrated recognition of, but you don't have awareness about. And this is God the Creator. And he launches into a message that starts about God the Creator. Never a starting point for Paul when he's dealing with the Jews. He always started at a different place. But he started with the common ground. You believe in God. You believe in God who created. You believe in a God that you don't know. And I'm here to tell you about this creative God who is a loving God, who sent his son Jesus, who died for our sins, who came back to life. This is the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And amazingly that day, one of the Supreme Court justices of, the, of this court of Greek philosophers committed his life to Jesus. And a woman who was listening in and several others as well as the church was launched in Athens. We not only have the privilege to go into God's world and meet people where they are, where has he scattered you in your life, but we get to go into God's world and meet people where they are culturally and philosophically as well. I'd like to introduce you to my friend. Let's call him Jack. Uh, Jack is in his early 70s. He's taller than I am. He's bigger than I am. He has more hair on his head than I do. Well, it's longer anyway. It is brilliant white. He combs it straight back. It's fairly long. He looks kind of like Einstein, except he actually combs his hair. He has a deep, booming voice. He has force of personality. One of these people that when he steps in the room, other people notice he's coming in the door. He intimidates a lot of folks. And on top of it, he is very wealthy. He's a powerful person. When I was first warned about him, it was from a friend of mine who happens to be a believer in Jesus too, wonderful guy, younger than I am. And he warned me about this guy. This can't make it into the tape that goes up in case my friend hears. He was warned. I was warned. He is big. He is arrogant. He is loud. He is aggressive. And he's rich. That was the warning. Now, that sounds like an interesting person to me, doesn't it, you? Wouldn't you want to engage with him? And we are friends. Uh, We talk at least weekly on the phone. He lives out of state. And I see him about every other week because uh, we have some stuff in common. This was about three weeks ago. I saw him last week. But three weeks ago, we had dinner together. And there were two other colleagues as well. And uh, both of them happened to be uh, believers too. And my friend Jack and me. And we went out for dinner. And we went to a restaurant. And they we're on a a wait list. And so we first of all went over to a bar and we sat there on the stools and and, uh, he had his glass of wine and I was working on my iced tea and it took a long time and the iced tea was leaking and the little cocktail cocktail napkin was starting to get messy. and, And we were talking about God and life and worldview and I'm utterly intrigued. 
And so I asked him if he could kind of chart it for me. I'm visual. And we had cocktail napkins all over the bar as he was explaining all this about God. And what was my interest? My interest was to love him where he is. He doesn't have many years left to come to Jesus, and God loves him desperately. And I have the privilege of having been sent into his life. So like Paul, I was checking out the philosophies of Athens, and, and he had these napkins all over the table, and I was beginning to look, and it only took an hour and a half. We were then moved to our booth. We ordered it. It only took an hour and a half to figure out where we had common ground. It was so much fun. And I said, Jack, this is amazing. We have so much that we're in agreement about. This is astounding. He believes in a personal God who is self-aware and who created everything. That is an amazing starting point. Some of your friends have Eastern religions that don't start at that point. And it's very different to have a conversation with people who don't start with a personal creative God. That's where the Stoics and Epicureans started. Wonderful thing. Secondly, he described God's primary characteristic as being loving. Wow. We're on track here. A personal, creative God that loves. And here's the capper. Paul did not have this one. That because God's loving, he wants to have relationship with his creation. And he primarily created intelligent beings to have relationship with them. Wow. The end of our dinner, knowing that we were going to have and do have ongoing relationship, I said, Jack, this is amazing. Look at how much we share in common. A belief in a personal creative God that is essentially love and created his beings to have relationship with us. I said, we have so much to talk about because really our point that we haven't come to agreement yet is how does God reach to us? to have relationship. Now, that's the substance, isn't it? Paul brought the good news about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Will Jack come to accept Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, that Paul said it clearly. The only offense is the offense of the cross. The cross is, to some, a delicious, sweet-smelling fragrance for those of us that accept Jesus' forgiveness. It is, for those that reject it, the most horrific offense. I don't know if the cross is going to become a delicious, sweet-smelling perfume or an offense to my friend Jack. I don't know if he will find the humility to kneel before his Maker and accept the gift of grace, of God's forgiveness. I don't know, but I do know this. If he stumbles on his way to Christ, he should only stumble over the offense of the cross. He should not have to stumble over Christians on his way to the offense of the cross. That's what I know. There is nothing wrong with loving people where they are. And Paul beautifully demonstrated the thoughtfulness, the care, and the respect to engage with people as thoughtful others. And some of them came to faith. That's the essence of the gospel. 
So we have the privilege of going to where they are. We have the privilege of loving people where they are culturally and philosophically without ever compromising the message of the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And the third and final thing I want to notice with you this morning before we receive communion together is this. We love people by serving with unselfishly relevant styles. Notice what Paul writes back to the church at Corinth. If we continued reading in Acts, in a couple of chapters, we would come to the founding of the church at Corinth. He later writes two letters that we have the record of back. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, this is what he says. Though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak, I become all things to all men that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Our question is, where are you expressing flexibility to love others? And that's true for all of us. We're all doing that. So we have here today with us a chaplain in our community. And his life is engaged. It's Joel, isn't it? His life is engaged in going to people at their point of crisis and need in life. Our church is a part of a greater support team that makes that possible, going to where people are. So I see Michael and uh, Lacey and uh, Silas today. And you read about Lacey's house if you uh, read the Argus. In fact, a week ago Friday and then Tuesday in both of those Argus editions, there's big feature stories about Lacey's house. And Mike and Lacey just have a driving passion for homeless Vietnam vets. There's, what, a hundred or so just living out east of town in the Banks area, homeless vets. And said, someone has to go and do something about this. And so took their own money and resources and have beautifully uh, uh, created two homes uh, here in Hillsboro. It's called Lacey's House and personally provide funding for that. Why? Demonstrating love in a way that says we're going to change the way we live so we can flexibly love others as well. We had a fun experience just, uh, it was a few years ago now. Hillary, our daughter, was 16 and some of you have met her and you know that she just has this uh, almost blazing blonde hair, and she's just as white and fair as she could possibly be. Back when the kids were growing up and Ann and I traveled occasionally, we would take one of the kids with us on different trip, trips. And I was going to Papua New Guinea and took Hillary with me. And as many of you know, that nation is still one of the most remote and unaffected by outside either Eastern or Western influence in the whole world. And God has and does a marvelous thing there. And I was asked to come and be the guest speaker at a pastor's conference. And pastors, literally 400 of them, traveled, some of them for several days, to come in out of the mountains in the bush to be a part of this conference. The conference was under a very large tent, which served during the day as a place to meet and at night as the hotel. 
as these men and women literally traveled with the clothes they were wearing and a blanket, which was their sleeping pad and bedroll and sleeping bag. And all the meals were served there as well. And Hillary and I were the two non-Papua New Guinea native folks. And that 16-year-old girl just glowed. She was an outstanding character there. Because we were the guests of honor, we always got to go first for the meals. And because Hillary was the female, she got to go first. And so every meal would line up, and there was a long buffet line, and there's 400 people behind us, and there's Hillary, and there's Dad, and she gets a plate, and she starts going down the line. And what's she going to do? That afternoon, she had seen the boys with slingshots shooting the bats out of trees. We know where they were going for dinner that night. Bats, fruit bats. They're big. There's a lot of meat on a fruit bat. I didn't know that before. Ann and I and Bonnie have never known Hillary to have the strongest stomach. And there was Hillary, that little missionary trooper, loving people where they were physically, culturally, cuisine-wise, picking up unidentified meat parts of unidentified creatures and putting them on her plate and sitting down and grabbing a drumstick from something she did not want to ask what it was and biting into it as 400 sets of eyes were watching, not because she likes bat. And we've gone out for restaurants many times since. She's never asked. I don't see bat on the menu. (laughs) But because she understood that loving people at that moment and that time meant that she was going to engage them at where they lived and where they were honoring her. Now, this is the juxtaposition. It was that weekend that we got home, and I flew off to Billings, Montana, where I uh, was speaking at Faith Chapel, and that particular run of months, eight consecutive months, I spoke there at least once a month. So people in Billings actually thought I was on staff there. They didn't introduce me. I just popped up, and I guess it's Jared's time to talk. And it was. And that particular uh, Saturday night or Sunday, whichever it was, uh, a guy, let's call him Sam, just came running to me. And I know Sam. I love Sam. I've seen Sam there over the decades. Sam has been a part of Faith Chapel for years. I love Sam. Just always fun. Sam is a rancher. I'm a farmer, rancher background. I talk farm. I talk ranch. I love it. But Sam didn't have ranch on his mind that day. He was mad. And I thought, I frequently offend people, but generally not people that are out of state. So I wonder what the deal is. And he came to me and he said, I want you to tell him he can take that drumstick. And, and then he described a location where he should put the drumstick that was rather crude and not very pleasant. And I was stunned. And I said, Sam, what are you talking about? This nice Sam that I'd grown to, to know and love over the years. He was just angry. He was not to be placated. So I was headed back off to around to the platform, the green room, and I saw some of the worship team. And, and I said, I, you know, I just spoke to someone out in the, in the lobby. And they said, Sam. I said, how did you know? This is a church now of 5,000 people. How did you? They said, Sam's kind of on a tirade now, right now. I said, well, what does that sound like? And he said, he is just the Sam that we know and love has become all about the drumstick. And this is what I thought. I don't care if Sam ever likes drums. I may not like them as much as you think. I hope Hillary doesn't like bat drumsticks. 
But I thought about the two interesting experiences that I had in the course of a few hours in different places in the world. All of us are called to hold drumsticks, aren't we? We're all called to go, called to go into God's world and love people in the context where we find them. Now, I just want you to know that I've proof texted this because I don't like that either. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 19, clearly prohibits eating fupas and bats. So anytime you find fupas or bats, you are safe. You do not have to eat them. Of course, it's the same passage that tells those of us that go to the men's breakfast that you can't eat pork. So I don't know what we're going to do about the sausage that's there, but fupas and bats are absolutely not on the list. What is God saying to us? I think God's saying to us this. If you want to follow me in seeing many people, can I quote the words that we read today? Respond to the message. Be baptized. Be persuaded. Come to believe in. Win as many as possible. Win, win, win. Opened heart to the faith all for the sake of the gospel, save. We read those words today. I think the Lord is saying, this is my invitation. If you want to continue to be a church that I have the privilege of using in those ways, then please continue to be the church that goes out and loves people where God has sent you, that is willing to lovingly, respectfully engage people where they are right now. And then to understand that the nature of love is always to what? It's always to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Anne and I have been here at Evergreen now for 10 months. And as we have looked at the history of this church and as we have engaged with you, that's exactly the kind of congregation we have found. This word is not a corrective word. It's not an unusual word. It's like the response that I had in a card last week where one of the men who's been a part of this church for many, many years, literally decades, says, you're describing the church that I've always known evergreen to be in God's grace. May that be so. And may he give us wisdom on how he asks us to love people in this part of his world. As we receive communion this morning together, it's actually an extension of this message. In just a moment, I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and in just a moment, we'll ask ushers to come, and they're going to begin to distribute the elements of communion, the, the bread, the body of Jesus, and the cup, the juice, the blood of Jesus. It again was to the church at Corinth that Paul wrote these words, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whatever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And then he continues with a rather curious instruction to believers, us. He says, don't do this in an unworthy manner, 
but examine yourself. And then he describes some ill things that have happened for people that have been rather unthoughtful about how they have participated. And why would that be so? Notice that when I hold the bread and the cup, how much room is there in my hands to hold other things? Really not much, is there? That's the worthy taking of the bread and the cup. It's the coming the way I pray that my friend Jack will come on bended knee sooner than later to say, Jesus Christ, your Lord. It's only and exclusively because of who you are and what you've done. The living life in human form, letting your body be broken apart, Part so my personhood and body can be whole and I can be engaged in the body of Christ in a holistic way. And the shedding of your blood, spikes driven through hands, spear into the side, gushing out blood and water, blood spilt, death happened. Why? Because it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sins. The coming in a worthy manner is not because you've been better than you used to be or good enough or haven't failed as frequently, but it's worthy because you come on bended knee and say, Jesus, I'm worthy because of your broken body and I receive your wholeness today. I'm worthy because of your blood and I receive your forgiveness today. And this may be the day for you that you get right with God. It's your day of crossing the bridge into a relationship with God by receiving his gift of grace and forgiveness. For others of us today, maybe like you, you're facing a week with too many things in your hands. And this morning, you're going to start this week that's already busy with difficult things by saying, I'm going to boil it down to what is really substantial Lord, it's you today. Worship team, would you come and lead us in this great hymn? And as they come and lead us, ushers, would you come down? And as the ushers pass by your row, the, uh, the trays, would you reach in and take a piece of bread? And you can help one another do this by holding the tray and reach in and take a cup as well so that you're holding in each hand these elements as we continue to sing. And then we'll pray together and then we'll partake together. Lord, thank you for your body, and thank you for your blood. Forgive us of our sins. Give us the courage to let go of some things that we've held dearly. Lord, help us hold to you. We receive your love today, and we love in your name as well. In Jesus' name.